This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. We're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 19 this morning as we continue our series on refrigerator verses. While you're turning to 1 Kings chapter 19, let me read you a short quote from a famous preacher. He wrote, My friend who was at that time the pastor of a Presbyterian church in Irvine asked me to preach for him and offered me his house for some days of vacation while they were away, and so I, we took him up on it. But something happened <clears throat> which was remarkable and probably a wake-up call, a warning for me in midlife to hold fast to, to Jesus, he recalled. He continued, One day out of the blue... I felt inexplicably depressed while I was there. One morning I was sitting on the stairway to the second level of their house crying. My wife found me and was startled because that's not typical, so she asked me what's wrong and all I could say was, I don't have any idea. Anyone know who wrote that? Have you heard that before? You might be surprised to hear that that was John Piper describing one of his bouts of depression. And... He's not alone. Charles Spurgeon, C.S. Lewis, David Brainerd is a missionary. Uh, William Cowper was a hymn writer, wrote, There is a fountain filled with blood. All these men struggled with depression throughout their life. They all had major impacts on the world around them, and they all struggled with depression. In fact, there's a few other influential men you may have heard of who also struggled with depression. Their names were Moses, King David, Jeremiah, and Jonah, just to name a few. All showed signs of a struggle with depression. Now I bring up those names because the idea of depression has become kind of taboo in the church. There are these two competing, contrasting ideas or perspectives in the church about depression. One perspective says that depression is a normal part of life. It's a natural thing that happens to everyone. Some people experience it at, at different levels than others, but it's a normal thing. And therefore, they would say that depression in general, it's not wrong, <clears throat> nor is it the result of you doing something wrong. It's just a normal part of life. Yet on the other hand, there are those in the church who would say that depression is a weakness that the reason someone gets depressed is because they don't have enough faith. That if they had enough faith in God, they would have more hope in Him than whatever they were being depressed about. So which is it? Is depression normal or is it wrong? Is it, is it normal or is it wrong for a Christian to be depressed? This morning, I believe God is going to give us an answer to that question in our passage. In fact, that's what I want you to hear this morning. I want you to hear what God has to say to the depressed. That's what I want you to hear this morning, is what God has to say to the depressed, because we're going to look at what God has to say to another biblical character <clears throat> who probably displayed the greatest signs of depression, and his name was Elijah. 
the prophet Elijah. So let's read our text this morning and see where Elijah was. It's 1 Kings chapter 19. We're going to begin in verse 8. It says, And he, that's Elijah, arose and ate and drank, and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel the king of, to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshi you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abelamoholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So, what does God have to say to the depressed? We're going to do this a bit differently than usual. <clears throat> First, I, I'm, I'm going to spend quite a bit of time this morning setting up our context, because without it, this passage won't be easy to understand. It won't mean as much. Then, rather than going straight through our passage, we're going to look at three different causes or factors that, that, come, that cause depression in this passage. And we'll look at those three causes or factors followed by what God has to say to each of those factors. So, first, let's, how did Elijah get here? How did he get to where he is, both physically and mentally? Well, interestingly, Elijah had just been involved in perhaps one of the top three biblical confrontations ever, right up there with David and Goliath and Samson kind of stuff. You see, Elijah had, con had just confronted the king of Israel named Ahab, his wife named Jezebel, and their priests. And the reason he confronted them is because they all served Baal. What Elijah had done was, was, was one morning he invited them up to the top of a mountain, <clears throat> and he said, let's make a bet. Let's, let's build, each build an altar. Let's put some wood and some rocks on it, and then <clears throat> let's each uh, put a bull on it, and let's pray to our God and see whose God will answer him and light that altar on fire. So, so the story goes, this is all in 1 Kings 18, if you want to read it, that, that, the, that the priests of Baal made their altar and started you know, chanting and walking around the altar. But here's where the story gets good. 
At about noon, the Bible says that nothing had happened. So it says that Elijah started to mock those priests and say, hey, maybe you guys ought to chant louder. You know, maybe your God is in the bathroom or talking to somebody and he can't hear you. That's literally what he said. You can read it yourself. And so the priests of Baal did so. They, they started chanting louder and cutting themselves. It says, the Bible says, until the ground was wet with their blood. Until about dusk, still nothing had happened. And Elijah was like, all right, you guys have had your chance. Now it's my turn. And just to make sure there was no funny business, he ordered that his altar be doused with water three times over. Just to make sure that he wasn't doing anything funny. And then he prayed. And he asked God to answer him. He asked God to show all the people that were there his power. And the Bible says that fire fell from the sky. And it didn't just consume the wood and the bowl. It says it consumed the rocks and the, and the, and the water and the dust beneath it. In other words, when God got done answering Elijah's prayer, there was nothing but like a smoking crater where the altar used to be. And after that incredible display of power, the Bible says that Elijah commanded all the people to seize the, the priests of Baal and slaughter all 450 of them, and they did. However, as soon as that happened, <clears throat> King Ahab jumped on his camel or whatever he had there and ran back to tell his wife Jezebel what had happened. Because Jezebel, like any good politician, had bailed as soon as things started to go sideways. I think the Hebrew word there is probably whipped, but I'm not positive. But as soon as Jezebel heard what happened, she put a hit out on Elijah. Wanted Elijah dead. So Elijah took off south into the wilderness to hide. Now, if you know anything about the wilderness south of Judea, you know that the reason Elijah was allowed to hide there is because no one would ever go there. There's no food or water there. <clears throat> unless you're into the whole eating like bugs and sticks kind of a thing. I don't know, maybe you shop at Whole Foods. But they're still, they're harder to find in the desert. So Elijah was running through this desert where there, there's nothing. He had to stop because he was starving and thirsty, but there's nothing to eat. So God miraculously sent him food. And what we read in the first verse this morning in verse 8 was that the Bible says that meal was so filling that it sustained him for 40 days and nights of hard travel until he got to, the, to, to Horeb, which is where our text picks up this morning. So, that's what transpired in the days prior to our passage, which means the natural question is, why is Elijah depressed? Why how can Elijah be depressed after experiencing something like that? I mean, he just experienced two incredible miracles. Not to mention the other miracles he's experienced in his life. He's one of the very few people outside of Jesus who raised someone from the dead. It seems to me like during those 40 days or so of travel that Elijah had been kind of rehearsing this little speech for God. You know, like those superhero figurines where you push the button and they say something like, to infinity and beyond. It's like Elijah is one of those, but he's broken. Every time God presses his play button, he says something like, like, like verse 10 or verse 13 or verse 14. Excuse me. He says, 
Every time God pushes his button, he says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel, but the people have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and I am, only I am left. How did Elijah get there? With that as the setup, let's look at what God has to say. We're going to look at our passage, and we're going to look at a few factors that caused Elijah's depression, and then we're going to see what God said to those factors. So look at the beginning of verse 10. The beginning of verse 10, where I want you to see the first thing in our passage that led Elijah to depression is he kept insisting on his own self-righteousness. You notice there he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord. Or zealous, your translation might say. Now, what Elijah is saying is true. Zealous is perhaps one of the best words to describe Elijah. However, at this point, the guy who's proclaiming his zeal for the Lord is hiding and running. You see, what often happens is that we, we experience this great work of God, this, this mountaintop experience. We, we overcome a big sin or we're, we're used by God to do something amazing in His kingdom. But as we look back at that experience and as we start to come down off of that mountaintop, what can happen is a, a spiritual pride can start to grow in our hearts like kudzu on a tree. One big clue that Elijah may not be as zealous as he claimed comes in both verse 9 and verse 13, where God said, Elijah, what are you doing here? See, there's a strong rebuke in that question. It's kind of like your parents asking you, what do you think you're doing? They don't want an answer. They don't want you to be like, well, I was thinking, actually, Mom, if I kick the soccer ball against the house, I might be able to break a window. That's why. That's what I'm doing here. They don't want an answer. The same is true with this question. If God ever asks you, what are you doing here? There's a strong chance you're not where you're supposed to be. You see, by mentioning his zeal for the Lord, Elijah was, was exposing that he thought he deserved special treatment. He thought God owed him something for his performance. And when he realized that God was not like Amazon and this didn't arrive next day, he got depressed. This is called the gospel of goodness. It's the gospel that says if I do things right, if I do things like God tells me to, things will then go how I want them to. It's the gospel that puts God in our debt. If I do what God tells me to, then what I expect will happen. The problem is, you see, there's just a few people in Scripture that might disagree with you. Their names are Joseph, Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Jonah, Hosea, all the disciples, Paul, this other guy named Jesus. All had an entirely opposite experience to that. The point is, one of the things that led Elijah into depression was his self-righteousness. He thought he deserved special treatment, and when he didn't receive it, it rocked him. So what does God have to say to people like Elijah who find themselves depressed because what they wanted to happen didn't? 
Well, to them, God says, remember my plan, not your presumptions. He says, remember my plan, not your presumptions. You see, just like Elijah, the problem is that we have a tendency to think we know how things should go. We have a plan that is very well thought out, and it will work, God, just get it done. That we know how life should turn out, what would be best for us, how God ought to do things that would be in the best interest of everyone around us, namely me. However, the simple fact of the matter is that we're not God. His ways are so far higher, His thoughts are so far higher than ours. You see, what had happened to Elijah was was back in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Moses was writing his farewell letter to the people before they went into the promised land. And he really wanted them to be okay with him leaving them. And so he wanted them to know that another prophet was going to come to take care of them. And he wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, he said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Now, the reason I bring that up is because part of Elijah's problem was that he thought he was that prophet that Moses promised. He thought he was that prophet that the people were going to listen to. He he thought that that God was going to instruct Israel to listen to him. So, So when he ran into the desert to get away from Jezebel, he thought God was going to scold Israel for not listening to this prophet. But look what God has to say. To Elijah, back, look at the second half of verse 11. He says, And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire the sound of a low whisper. You see where it says low whisper, or your translation might say gentle whisper, or still small voice. Well, that word low or or still, it literally means like thin or fine dust, like talc. And that word whisper or voice, everywhere else in Scripture is translated as a hush or a silence. In other words, after the wind and the earthquake and the fire, there was a thin silence. We might think of it like like silence hung in the air like a fog. Or you could cut the silence with a knife. That kind of a thing. What was God going to say to Elijah? Was He going to confirm what Elijah thought? that, That He was in fact the prophet that Moses promised. Well, when the time came for for the answer Elijah wanted to hear, all he heard was a deafening silence. You see, it took about 900 years for Elijah to get the answer to his question. The gospel writers described a day when Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to the top of another mountain. And on the top of this mountain... Jesus peeled back the veil over his deity just a touch to let Peter, James, and John see who he really was. But the gospel writers say that there were two other men that joined Jesus on this mountain. They were talking to him. It says it was Moses and Elijah. 
Now, we don't know what they were talking about. Maybe Jesus was like, hey, check this out, Mo, and he flashed a little extra glory towards the disciples, and they jumped behind a rock because they freaked out. We don't know. One thing we do know is this. We do know that on that day, 900 years later, Elijah figured out who Moses was talking about. Because the gospel tells us that while they were on this mount, a voice came out of the sky and said, This is my son, my chosen one. It is to him you shall listen. You see, Elijah thought that he was supposed to somehow be the person who would save God's people. That was not God's plan. But when it came time for God to do what Elijah thought should happen, he was just met with this resounding silence. Am I God? Am I I that prophet God? That's what he heard. Listen, sometimes you find yourself in a place of depression, and the only thing that is worse than the depression is the silence that you seem to hear from God. When that happens, when you find yourself there, when you find yourself depressed and facing this deafening silence from God, God is telling you not to dig deeper into your expectations and your presumptions, but to look for His plan instead. To look where God is speaking and for what He is saying. Sometimes God is silent because He has no use or need or desire to confirm our expectations that He should do what we want Him to. So to those who are suffering depression because of their self-righteousness, God says, remember my plan, not your presumptions. That leads to the next thing that seems to have brought Elijah to this place of depression, which was self-pity. Look at verse 10. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophet with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Now make no mistake, again, just like with this zeal, there is some truth to this statement. Chapter 18 tells us that the people had rejected God, and they had broken down God's altars, and they had killed some of His prophets. However, As is so often the case when we find ourselves in depression, the truth Elijah was choosing to believe was just a partial truth. In other words, Elijah was guilty of a a selective memory because he was in danger. You see, in chapter 18, it also tells us that a man named Obadiah had saved a hundred of God's prophets. And that many hearts had turned back to God and slaughtered all the priests of Baal when they saw what happened with Elijah. In fact, look at the pronoun that Elijah uses at the end of verse 10. Notice how he says, they seek my life to take it away. The only person seeking Elijah's life was Jezebel. Elijah had turned she into they. And isn't this so often the case? How in our depression we exaggerate our troubles and our dangers and our failures. Elijah saw his own problems and his own danger and his own failures as bigger than they really were. Bigger than God, in fact. And by doing so, what Elijah had actually done was shrunk God. 
So what does God have to say to people like Elijah who find themselves depressed because they've fed themselves a steady diet of their own failure and weakness? To those, God says, remember my faithfulness, not your failure. God says, remember my faithfulness, not your failure. You see, it's no accident that Elijah is at Mount Horeb because the other name for Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai. This was the place where God had revealed Himself to His people after they had left Egypt. In fact, look at verse 11. He said, And He said, Go out and stand before the mount of the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke the pieces of the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord wasn't in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. He wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. You see, God had actually told Moses the exact same thing. He had told Moses to go stand on that mount, just like he told Elijah. And God had presented himself to Moses exactly like he did Elijah, in a storm with wind and fire and earthquakes. Look back at verse 9, actually. It says that Elijah says, There he came to a cave. In Hebrew, there's actually a definite participle in front of that word cave, meaning in Hebrew, it literally says that he came to the cave. Which cave? Well, I think it was the cave that Moses sheltered in, why God spoke to him for 40 days and nights. It's the same place. In other words, God wanted to remind Elijah, he wanted, excuse me, he wanted Elijah to remember his faithfulness in the past. He wanted Elijah to remember God's faithfulness in the past. He's saying, remember what I've done for my people, Elijah, while you're sitting here on this mountain. Remember my faithfulness when I brought my people out of Egypt. Remember my faithfulness when I helped them cross the Red Sea. Remember my faithfulness when I fed my people with manna and gave them water out of rocks and defended them from their enemies, big and small. Remember that faithfulness while you're here, Elijah, just like I have and will continue to show you. In effect, at the height of Elijah's spiritual depression, God said, Elijah, remember who I am, not who you are. Remember my faithfulness, not your failure. God still says the same thing to those today who find themselves stuck in depression. He says, instead of feeding yourself a steady diet of your own failures and inadequacies, feast on my faithfulness that I have always shown to my people. Things like, I will never leave you or forsake you. Things like, I am faithful to work all things for the good. A feat, by the way, he often likes to, to accomplish when we cannot. To those who are depressed, God says, remember my plan, not your presumptions, and remember my faithfulness, not your failure. Third, notice another reason for Elijah's depression was his self-importance. See, Elijah had only mailed out one invitation to his pity party here in the desert. Twice toward the end of verse 10 and 14, if you'll notice, he said, I... Even I only am left. But look at what God reminded him in verse 18. God said, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. 
So Elijah was more than a little off on his calculations. He was actually off by a factor of 6,999. In other words, it wasn't really I and I only. This, this wasn't just a half-truth. This was like, what, Steve? A one-seven-thousandth of a truth? Something like that? Elijah had convinced himself that he was totally alone, that there was nobody to sympathize with him or help him carry out God's plan. And you see, just like Elijah, just like this, when it comes to depression, we often inflict this self-imposed isolation on ourselves. Did you notice how Elijah never reached out to anyone, including God? Sure, he was talking to God, that's all over this passage, but did you notice how God was the one who always initiated the conversation? Elijah was just festering in his self-imposed isolation. You see, when we find ourselves in times of depression, we're often afraid that the pain of other people knowing about our struggle will be worse than just continuing to endure where we are. The difficulty of confronting and dealing with the problem, it often frightens us more than tolerating the heartache that we're experiencing at the moment. I can promise you one thing, though. That always backfires. It always backfires. Just like Elijah, the unaddressed problems and the resulting strain, this, this festering isolation, it just keeps getting worse and worse until roots of bitterness and jealousy and futility take hold. This is how you have marriages that, that unexpectedly dissolve after like 30 years because of issues that weren't addressed. It's why problems get to the point where they seem impossible to unravel. It's because in, this, in a state of, of self-pity, some impose a self-isolation on themselves and, and they don't reach out for help. A pastor named Phil Riken put it this way. He said, Spiritual depression is often a vampire that feeds upon the lies we preach to ourselves in solitude. So what does God have to say to people who find themselves here? Those who, like Elijah, in a, in a state of self-imposed isolation, have fed themselves a, a steady diet of self-importance and, and, and self-protection. Well, to them God says, remember my power, not your powerlessness. Remember my power, not your powerlessness. Look at verse 15. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of that guy, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. And I will rescue 7,000 who have not bowed to Baal. You see, God told Elijah that he was still sovereign over not just his people, but the nations. He said, I'm still in control of who will sit on thrones and rule my people. And Elijah, neither will the will of men nor of kings nor of kings' wives, none of them will keep me from, from, from acting on my will and executing my plan. And just to make sure you understand how powerful I am, God said, I'm going to do two things. 
Two things different than what you expect. You see, it was normal for Elijah to anoint the king of Israel. It was normal for Elijah to anoint his successor in Elisha. But did you notice that little bit about Elijah anointing Hazael as king of Syria? Syria wasn't part of Israel. Syria was a foreign pagan nation. But God said to Elijah, listen, let me just show you how powerful I am. I don't want you to just tell Israel who's going to be their king and their prophet. I want you to tell Syria who's going to be their king and then watch it happen, Elijah. And in addition to that, I'm going to keep 7,000 people over here who love me. Listen, brothers and sisters, don't ever think your problems are beyond the power of God. Don't ever think that He can't do something in your life. Sure, it might be difficult. It might be painful. It might even be frightening to deal with. But that's just how you see it, not God. He establishes kings and kingdoms and He holds the universe in perfect harmony. He can handle your relationship and sin issues. He can. Even the difficult ones. You may need to submit to His power and His authority, but He can handle it. And, and, and just on a little aside here, when, when, when you get to this point, one of the primary ways that God has provided for you to take care of you is through those around you, including people like me. You see, there are some who, who think the people around them, including me, they don't know what's going on in their life. Like a kid playing hide-and-seek, they put their hands over their face and they think no one can see them. I hate to break it to you, that's not true. There's this little thing called the spiritual gift of discernment. And you can't hide from it because it's the Spirit and you can't hide from the Spirit. People know. You're the only one that is imposing this self-isolation. So when you're ready for help, my door is always open. And I know anyone here, their door is open. And if you're struggling to make that leap, I want you to know that, that I will tell you the same thing that God is telling Elijah in our passage. And that's remember God's power, not your powerlessness. And that leads to the last thing I want you to hear from our passage. And we'll close with this. What happens when you do finally reach out? When you do finally hear from God, whether it be directly from His Word or, or, or from someone else in your life, well, you see, I believe that God did speak to Elijah in a still voice. I do believe that God spoke to Elijah quietly. I don't believe He, he chastised Elijah loudly. I don't believe He thundered from the sky, Elijah, stop being depressed, you wimp. I don't think that's what He did. But look at the beginning of verse 15 one last time. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. You see, in this series, we're looking at these verses that our culture has taken and turned into these little anecdotal inspirational quotes. But after God had brought wind and earthquake and fire and silence, Elijah put his cloak over his face and walked out to the opening of the cave. He wasn't stupid. He knew what would happen if he looked at God. When Elijah came out to the cave, 
God said in verse 15, go to Damascus. In other words, when Elijah was finally ready to listen to God, he covered his face. He walked out to the mouth of the cave. And in a still, small voice, God said to him, Elijah, get back to work. Remember my plan. Remember my faithfulness. Remember my power. Go to Damascus. You see, God didn't blast Elijah with rebuke. He didn't yell at him for being weak. He spoke to Elijah with a quiet voice, a tender voice, a compassionate voice. But that doesn't mean that he just patted him on the head either and said, it's okay to stay where you are. No, in God's quiet, caring, compassionate voice was still truth. The truth that Elijah needed to lift his gaze and start trusting God again instead of himself and man. The writer of Hebrews has something similar to say to us about another prophet. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 1, verse 1, he said this, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And then just a little bit later, in the beginning of chapter 2, the writer of Hebrews said this about that better prophet. He said, Therefore, we must pay closer attention to, to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. In other words, we, we must therefore listen to Him closer. You see, when we find ourselves in a pra- place of, of depression, if we trust Jesus enough to save us, we must trust Him enough to listen to Him. To listen to the truth that He would tell us through His Word and through those He has placed in our lives to counsel us and, and guide us to Him. Because when we do, when we do finally listen to God, when we, when we listen to those who would guide us to Him, what we will hear is we will hear, just like Elijah, we'll hear our Savior say in a still small voice, Remember my plan, not your presumptions. Remember my faithfulness and not your failure. Remember my power and not your powerlessness. And get back to work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.